We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. My name is Emily Watkins. I'm our Disabilities Desk Reporter. I'm joined by Chief Policy Officer for Western New York Independent Living, Todd Varwork. Welcome to the show, Todd. Always a pleasure. So to start, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about who you are and the work you do at Western New York Independent Living. Well, as Chief Policy Officer of Independent Living, for the, for the listeners out there, I'm a person with a disability. I'm a wheelchair user with cerebral palsy. And I work for an independent living center. And the thing about independent living centers is we're unlike most of your standard social service agencies for people with disabilities. We serve anybody with a disability who comes to our door. It's called cross-disability. And our main focus is, is people with disabilities helping each other, uh, which is what they refer to as peer relationship. And out of those two things grow all the services that come from our independent living center. My job in the Independent Living Center as policy officer is to steer what they call community change work. My job is to make the community more accessible to people with disabilities, as opposed to other folks at our agency who are going to help another person with a disability resolve a problem that they might be having in terms of staying independent. And you've been at Western New York Independent Living for 29 years now, right? Uh, yes. Actually, next week we'll start my 29th year. Wow, congrats. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Uh, was there a moment for you that you decided to go into this advocacy and policy work? It was actually, it was a fluke job. Our CEO, Douglas J. Uziak, uh, hired me for temp work when we got into federal research on assistive technology. I did that job for a year, and then the person that had my job was called Systems Advocate back then. He took a position with county government. And they needed somebody to fill that position. People had to convince me. But I finally, uh, I agreed to take the job and now I've been at it, right? Did I, did I want to start to go into policy? I think it was more about getting the consumer's voice out first. And, and as the years have gone by, it's become less about organizing the community and more about understanding the way policy works and is developed. I mean, I still do a lot of organizing and education. Everybody in independent living should be educators at heart. But as the issues get more complicated, we need to get deeply, well, more deeply in the role of public policy, which is why my title has changed from systems advocate to disability rights advocate to director of advocacy to chief policy officer. Yeah. And you know, you you came on just a few years after the ADA was passed, and that's probably mm -hmm. the disability legislation most people are familiar with. But can you tell us a little bit more about um, the background of the independent living movement and, and what it was like coming on and into this work just shortly after the ADA was passed? Well, you got to remember that the background of the independent living movement is the 60s and the 70s, right? 
So it's specifically one person, Ed Roberts, is the who created the first independent living center in Berkeley, California, that worked with other advocates to establish the philosophy. And what happened was our philosophy is actually enshrined in law, something called Title VII of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So in order to be an independent living center, there's certain things that you have to do. And if you don't do them, you can't call yourself an independent living center. You have to promote peer relationships. Things have to be equally accessible to everyone. You have to have consumer control. Everything that an independent living center does is controlled by people with disabilities themselves, right? Those were critical things that came out of Ed Roberts' experience in recognize, for example, doctors had a lot of control over our lives. And while we have respect for physicians because our health and welfare depends on their advice and care, we also have something to say about our own lives. People that have been disabled for 30 years can educate somebody who just got a disability about how to navigate some of the things that they're about to come across, hence the value of the peer relationship. Yeah, and that ties into the the social model of disability, right? Correct. The looking at our lives from the perspective of like disability isn't just a medical condition, it's also the environment around us and the the systems that we're a part of. That's exactly correct. And I mean, what was it like when you started working at Western New York Independent Living? What were some of the issues that um, were impacting Western New Yorkers with disabilities? At the start of my career, which was just after the passage of the ADA, it was a lot about educating people about the ADA and kind of getting those systems in place. Um, special ed was educating a lot about inclusion, right? People were just trying to figure out what the mandatory role for disability inclusion was. Now, as I'm coming on my 30th year in the industry, I'm discovering that what's old is new again, because we spend a lot of time educating the systems and educating people and building their competency. Those people are retiring, new people are coming into those positions and we're educating them all over again. So we're finding that we're fighting the battles that we were fighting back in the 90s again, or, or a lot of them. Hopefully we're doing it smarter, but sometimes it feels like it's kind of a repeat, right? Yeah. And that it has to be difficult having to focus so much on just continuously educating people when our community fought to get out of institutions and hospitals, mm -hmm. fought to live in our community and have this peer support. And now there are things that you're fighting for that are beyond education, right? Correct. I mean, what are some of the things that you wish more people would focus on beyond education? What are some of the uh, things that people with disabilities desperately need right now to live in their community? Well, the barriers to community integration really haven't changed all that much over the last 30 years. It's just the dynamic within them that changes, right? So, for example, the number one barrier is housing, right? And there's a lot of factors with regard to housing, right? We in Buffalo have a very old housing stock. So it costs a lot potentially to mod a house, an existing house, so that a disabled person can live in it. But building a house new isn't something that a person with a disability can afford. So there's this perception that the housing market and choices are limited, and we need to be able to enhance those choices because if you, can't, if you don't have a place to go, you're going to end up still back in that nursing home system. 
that system is still there and still presents challenges. It's still, you know, $125,000 per person per year on an average in a nursing home in the region, right? When you can live safely and effectively in the community with supports for 35 to 40 grand. So you got to ask yourself, why should we be spending money to keep people in the community versus should we be spending money to keep people in institutions? For 30 years, we've proven that 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 we should be spending money in communities, but COVID did damage to that perception. We, we, we had some people whose service systems broke down living in their homes, ended up in the hospitals and needing to end up to go into rehab. Some of them haven't gotten out yet. So these are the things that we're fighting. It starts with housing. Next goes to transportation, right? We have to be able to move around. Most people with disabilities are not making money where they're going to be able to finance a car and operate it with insurance and do all of that kind of stuff. Like my insurance bill is two grand a year because as a disabled driver, I am automatically in the risk pool. So if I didn't get a job, I wouldn't be able to afford a, you know, a vehicle for transportation. So it's public transit, right? Before I had a vehicle, it was public transit, right? And public transit doesn't necessarily go everywhere you need to go. So you're selecting your housing based on whether or not public transit or paratransit, which is the ADA add-on for public transit from the 90s, can serve you, right? Yeah. After that, it becomes about, do we have the right to get a job? How, are the, you know, how do we get a job without losing the benefits that are critical to us? Absolutely. Right? And those are the, th the questions that you can come to an independent living center and get somebody to answer for you because there are work incentives. There are things that the government has done, right? But over the years, you know, we still have to tell people about them. They're still underutilized. The, you know, work incentives have to have value and employers have to be comfortable with taking people with disabilities into the workforce, right? I'm a big proponent of that. We are a very uh, loyal group of workers. You just got to give us a chance. Absolutely. Answer your question? Yeah. Good. And I mean, it also kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next, which is for a lot of people to live in their community, they also need um, a level of support, either through a direct support professional or a home mm -hmm. care worker. Right. And, you know, I think that a lot of people maybe have an idea of what that looks like, but it's not always accurate. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, what it's like for people with disabilities to have the support of either a DSP or a home care worker. All right. So for purposes of full disclosure, I'm a person who gets home care, right? So what happens is I'm seeing that person once or twice a day, depending upon the day of the week. I'm what they call a 30-hour-a-week client. Right? So Medicaid pays for somebody to come and provide me with 30 hours of assistance. So they could be coming to my door first thing in the morning to help me get dressed, do fall prevention so that I can shower safely and effectively. They could be helping me with environmental issues around my home, things like sweeping and mopping and doing laundry and taking the garbage out. They could be helping me with being able to shop and prepare meals basic tasks, right? I don't necessarily need help getting in and out of bed, but that's a very common mm -hmm. task for a personal care aide. 
helping somebody actually get from the bed to the chair to start their day, right? Um, that's what a, a personal care worker does. A DSP worker is a person that might be helping a, a person with a developmental disability in addition to the personal care stuff do those things that allow them the ability to interact with their broader community, whether it's travel with them to uh, meet a goal or to help tie them to a therapy or to a work opportunity or to a social opportunity to be with family so that they have the supports they need in order to be able to do that successfully. Yeah, definitely. Like I think of someone I met who had a DSP and they helped them budget and just kind of mm -hmm. get through their week, just things that, you know, are a little bit different when you have a hey, have we Hey, have we put, paid the bills yet? Yeah. Because sometimes you might not necessarily remember. So there might need to be a prompt and reminder about paying the bills. So the next half hour, you know, they're writing checks or putting them in the mail or getting on the internet and making sure that the cable is paid, the phone is paid, the electric's paid, the gas is paid. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for people with disabilities, having these support workers, it allows them to be fully integrated into their community. And can you talk a little bit about what an asset that provides to the community? Well, we just talked about the fact that there's that cost differential. You're staying in the community on that 40 grand versus not being in the community, being in a hospital or nursing home at $125,000. But also look at what, what the other things that happen, right? One, you're, you're employing somebody. You're your own little economic engine. And you're, all of those services that you get in the community are people that are serving you and supporting their families by doing so. But you also get the same benefit that everybody gets in being with the community. You know, the wisdom of your grandparents living at home versus living at the home, right? The ability to be able to be with your friends and relatives and share those key moments that are essential for life having subjective value. Mm -hmm. You really can't quantify that but the broader base of the community there's more people to enjoy our music there's more people to enjoy our art in buffalo there's more people to enjoy our food yep are you kidding <laughs> right and all of that means that everybody's participating more and the community is stronger because we're here you mentioned that obviously with having these home care workers and these dsps be assisting people we're also employing people and that's helping the economy but I also know that a major issue I've seen as a reporter is that there aren't enough workers to support all of the people who want to live in their community. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, about yes, that issue. Ah, uh, yes. The staffing crisis. No matter what segment of the disability community you're in, you are affected in one way or another by the staffing crisis. And the staffing crisis is about the, the value of work, right? Mm -hmm. Most PCAs, most direct service professionals, they're not making much more than minimum wage. Yeah. You can look at what they might bill Medicaid for a particular service, but the actual provider is only getting the minimum wage portion. The rest of it is overhead costs. The rest of it is administering the costs so that the check gets written and the, QA, the quality improvement, quality assurance stuff gets taken care of, right? And Minimum wage is not enough in today's economy necessarily to support your family and to meet the goals that you want. So what we've had, especially since COVID, is an issue where we're losing people 
not necessarily to stronger industries. They're not leaving us to become teachers or lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. They're leaving us to work at Target. They're leaving us to work at McDonald's because working at Target and working at McDonald's is paying more money. Yeah. And I know a lot of DSPs and home care professionals love their job. Yes. And they're very passionate about it. I, I'm wondering if you could also go a little bit more into detail about where this funding comes from. I know that West New York Independent Living is a fiscal intermediary, but not a lot of people know what that means. Can you talk a little bit more sure. about? When we talk about consumer-directed personal assistance, right, there's two types of personal assistance. There's what's called the traditional type of personal assistance, which means the doctor determines uh, how much uh, time you need, right, through an agency now called the New York Independent Assessor, right? And then what will happen is in traditional care, it'll get sent to a body of agencies that are in your health network. One of them will choose you and they will employ an aid and send the aid to your house, right? Mm -hmm. The downside with that model is, one, they may not have somebody right away that can fill that position, either because you're not getting enough hours to fully fund a person, or there might be too many hours for one person to be able to do a job. So for a long time, the traditional network has struggled with being able to fill cases. Mm -hmm. The other way of getting it done is what's called consumer-directed personal assistance. This is the stuff you see the ads on TV all the time. Hire your relative to be a caregiver, mm -hmm. right? That's what consumer-directed personal assistance is. You hire the person you want to provide your care. And the agency that you work with, all their job is, is to handle all of the paperwork and oversight that comes with hiring that person. We become what's called the employer of record. But it's more than just making sure you write a check, right? Yeah. It's making sure that your aides are meeting the health criteria in order to be a PCA, because there is. You gotta take a medical exam and prove that you can perform functions. It's being able to make sure that services are provided consistent with the doctor's plan and that the aides aren't doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. All of that stuff still needs to be handled by somebody. Mm -hmm. So that's what a fiscal intermediary does. Now you asked about funding. Most community-based care, whether it be PCA funding, consumer-directed funding, nursing funding, even the DSP funding is Medicaid dollars, Medicaid and Medicare dollars. Now, I'm gonna talk about Medicaid dollars because that's what I'm most familiar with. And Medicaid dollars is a split between the state and the federal government. But here in New York, we made it even more complicated because we're one of the states that takes the state portion and takes a chunk of it and sends it directly to the counties to pay. So Medicare, part of the Medicaid costs comes directly out of your county tax bill. Hmm. Now, while that cost is capped by the state government and they handle everything over the cap, and it didn't used to be, right? It's still an argument about why is this on my county tax bill? Mm -hmm. So it all comes from Medicaid and Medicaid is based on rates. The rates are set based on the total pool of Medicaid money they have available. Mm -hmm. So we talk about why we can't pay them more. That's because Medicaid won't or can't, and sometimes it's a little bit of both, increase the rate to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. So essentially, to break it down, the state puts money towards Medicaid, 
that money comes down the pipeline to you. And so if someone's doing consumer directed through West New York Independent Living, mm -hmm. they're able to work with you to pick their aid and you make sure they get paid and that all the rules are being followed. But if it Correct. goes up to the state level and the state level isn't investing as much as needed, then you're only paying, yeah. you're only able to pay a wage based on what the state is. Yeah, we're only able to, down. we're only able to pay a wage based on the rate that the state gives us to pay for that class of service. So if we're billing $22 an hour, just by way of example, right? Mm -hmm. And the aides are currently getting $16.20, that means there's a very small amount for all of the people that are administering that work on our side. Yeah. Okay. And so it causes a lot of trouble when there's little funding and it's not the only service you do. Right. Yeah. Right. And I know that from talking with a lot of my sources, they've expressed to me that the last administration, the last governor, there was just like a decade where they feel like there wasn't a lot, if any, funding put towards home care services. Can you talk a little bit about what what historically home care has looked like because of the investment in New York? Okay. So it's always been about being able to keep home care efficiently costed. That's the, the, the big word that they use for a really long time. So, so the history of home care starts with the traditional agencies starting to have a hiring problem. And then what we did was we said we were, we were unhappy. People with long-term disabilities were displeased with the traditional system because I didn't get a right to have anything to say about who came to my house. Yeah. It was a customer problem. Uh, first aid agency I ever had when I was in college. Um, I had a really dinky amount of hours per week. I had nine hours per week. Wow. So they would send a guy to my house three days a week for three hours at a time. I would have to leave school to go home and meet this guy because I couldn't tell them when to come to my house. Mm. The aid dictated or the aid agency dictated when that aid came to my house. Right. And then what would happen is uh, every at the end of every visit, I would sign off on the fact that they were there and I would rate them on a scale of one to five. And when I started rating them good numbers, they'd leave and I'd be replaced with a brand new guy. Because what would happen is they'd, be, they'd use me to train them mm -hmm. and then they'd go to higher need clients. Yeah. And then they'd send me the next new guy. So I'd have to retrain them all over again. And like college is a point in your life where like so many things are changing so fast. You have all these different but, classes. You're juggling a lot. And I'm, it but imagine training the person on how you like your laundry done and having to train five people on that in six months. Yeah, exactly. There's like, you don't have that sense of stability. Right. And you're doing it over and over and over again. So out of similar circumstances like that came this idea called consumer directed personal assistance service. Mm -hmm. We hire our aides. We supervise them. We train them. So it's going to provide greater stability for us in terms of that we control those things that we weren't able to control before. Mm -hmm. So I could pick up my aid and say, hey, look, I'm working late tonight, right? We're still going to do the shift, but the shift's going to start at 530 instead of five o'clock. Yeah. Right. Now, when they first came up with Consumer Directed, it wasn't meant to be a broad-based second path to aid service for 70,000 people. It was meant to be a boutique program, mm. a small program 
for a certain segment of the disability population that could benefit from having that control. Mm -hmm. The problem is the failure of the traditional system sent a whole bunch of other people into the consumer directed system. And this is where we get into where, where, where we think AIDS services today, right? Now they talk about explosive growth in costs in AIDS service. Too many people getting AIDS service, too much money uh, you know, being spent on a value that we can't measure. Mm. So in recent years, especially you know, with COVID, the state's taken a lot of steps to try to do cost containment. And they did it a whole bunch of ways. They put consumer-directed care, but not traditional care, on something called per member per month. Mm. So all of our administrative costs we don't get to build them by the hour like the other agencies do. Hmm. We get a single amount from the state per month for every consumer on fee-for-service that we serve. But that's not true for the traditional agencies. Hmm. Then they turn around and made it, they're making it harder for people with disabilities to apply for aid service, mm -hmm. right? It used to be if you had a substantial impairment in an instrumental activity of daily living, bathing, showering, walking, talking, right? You could apply for aid service to get help. Mm -hmm. And there, there's multiple levels of aid service. Level one, which is what they call environmental only, capped by the state at eight, at eight hours a week. Now, level one is the aids really don't touch you, right? Mm -hmm. The aids touch things you own, but not necessarily you. Yeah, like make you a meal, do your laundry. Right, make you a meal, do your laundry, uh, vacuum your carpet. Level two service is that service where they're helping you with bathing. They're getting you in and out of the tub. They're getting you in and out of bed. They're helping you get dressed, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're making it harder. Now they're saying you got to have three failures in instrumental activities of daily living in order to be eligible for aid service. Two, if you happen to have a cognitive impairment like Alzheimer's, hmm. right? And there are going to be people... And I worry about senior citizens specifically. There are going to be people that are going to be dealt out of aid service or not able to apply for it because they're going to apply that restriction. And somebody who's got a really bad thing with like being able to use the bathroom safely, not being able to get aid service and help with that because it's the only problem they have. Yeah. Right. And then we still have the problem with the billing rates and the rates that they're paying for wages which are you leading me to talk about fair pay for home care? Is that where this is going? Yes, it is. Cause I, I know that the budget just passed and it passed very quickly. And there's been a lot of concern from the disability community about what's in it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, where funding currently stands for. Home as an care. aide, I was very, uh, sorry, as a person with a disability who has aid service, right? I was very pleased with what the legislature did last year. I was shocked that after two years of statewide advocacy in a campaign, that fair pay for home care could manage to get a deal where there would be a separate wage for, aid, for AIDS that could deal with the gap between minimum wage and what the average wage is in a community, mm -hmm. right? And they managed to do that in basically two years of statewide campaigning. And I thought that when they did that, it was a two-year thing. So they got $2 in October last year, and they yeah. were slated to get a dollar in October this year. So we're like, okay, look, we'll advocate again when we've done the second year of the deal. 
what happened in this budget is they changed the deal. So they made a promise to us and they changed it. And now I can't say whether it's good or bad yet. At the time we're making this recording, we're, we've just passed the budget. The regs aren't available yet. Mm -hmm. But fair pay for home care is critical because it addresses that gap between aid service and other entry-level employment. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It doesn't matter what kind of aid service you get. It's the thing that kills us because most of the aids that work for us are single moms, new Americans, right? Yeah. These people are just trying to support their families and they love us and they care about us. But within the last year, I lost an aide because in needing to support her family, her kids, she needed to get a job that made more money. Yeah. She applied to be a bus driver, mm. right? Bus drivers in training are clearing 20 bucks an hour right now. Wow. Okay. I, yeah. So it, with a, even with a enhanced rate at 1620, which is what the rate is right now, I can't beat $20 an hour. Yeah. So that's where fair pay for home care is. And when we, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about the budget more broadly later, but the, but the, the thing with fair pay for home care and the DSP, the people advocating for the work of the DSPs, we talk about how critical that work is, but we got to be able to make sure that the people can stay in the industry without having to worry about whether or not there's enough money, right? Mm -hmm. So that they're, so that they're not on Medicaid. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Or their kids aren't on school lunches which is what the thing has been up to this point in time. Yeah, and you know, just to touch, you, you touched on these statistics, but um, I actually looked up through PHI National, which is a training and research nonprofit organization that tracks home care statistics. In New York, 81% of uh, home care workers are people of color, 90% are female, 58% mm -hmm. of direct support workers receive some type of uh, public assistance in New York State. Right. And beyond that, we also know that 45% are less than 200% below the poverty line and that a little over 60% are weren't born in the United States. Right. You know, and so right. it, it's... Uh, I know that a lot of people in the community see this as not just a disability issue, but it's a, a racial and gender equity issue as mm -hmm. well. And and mind you, the the battle on this, the battle on community care, right? Whether it's aid service, DSPs, um, mental health workers helping people on the OMH side of the aisle, there are whole bunches of community care workers that are helping people in the community, right? What's happening now is we're fighting for the same people because we're not the only industry talking about staffing crisis. And, you know, I can deal with the juggernaut that is Walmart or Target, right? I can deal with the juggernaut that might be Burger King or Arby's or any of those people. But when I'm sitting down and we're talking about the staffing crisis, we're also talking about other people that do other jobs that are just as important. Mm -hmm. Childcare workers, right? Right. 
non-certified positions in our hospitals and even, God forfend, in our nursing homes. Yeah. Right? The, remembering that the Olmsted decision talks about the fact that there has to be a continuity of care, right? Mm-hmm. And we're never going to get rid of a nursing home, right? But we want to be able to make sure that people who need that level of care actually need that level of care. Yeah. It That it, it shouldn't be about, well, it's too expensive to provide community care or uh, my family doesn't necessarily like it. I'm up against people that have just as valid a reason to fight for their wages in their families as people with disabilities do. The problem is most of those folks aren't going to lose their freedom if staff fails. Mm-hmm. And your listeners got to understand that that is a legitimate fear for people with disabilities. I'm a developmentally disabled guy in my just coming into my late 50s. I I have a regular fear I am one bad fall away from a rehab stay, mm-hmm. right? And will the rehab stay become a permanent stay where I'm never going to leave the facility again, right? When I have been living, you know, on my own, right, in my, you know, in my own house, right, doing a job, right, what's going to happen if I do a slip and fall and all that goes away? Yeah. So that person that stands in front of my stairs right, to make sure that my head doesn't hit the pavement is really important to my life. Mm -hmm. Just like the person that takes care of your child while you're at work is really important to your life. Or even like hospice workers. Correct. They fall into that. And and I've heard that from so many people I've talked to in the community is that they say we're afraid we're going back to Willowbrook, right? They're afraid that they could be institutionalized in the sense if they don't have the support to live in their community. We could, we could say that COVID created a legitimate fear for that. Yeah. Because remember the stories about our former governor and what he hid, what, what he hid and what he did or what he may have done, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we heard horror stories of people in facilities during COVID that literally were locked in isolation 23 hours a day. Prisoners in Supermax got out of their rooms more often than some of the things that were happening in some of our state facilities. So there's a genuine, I can understand a genuine fear about going back to Willowbrook. But the thing about that is, one, independent living is going to fight that. I know I will fight it to my last breath. Mm -hmm. I also know that other advocates will continue to remind people that Willowbrook never worked. Yeah. The, the model was never sufficient, right? And by the way, for those people that don't know what we're talking about, because I just realized yeah. we've been having an <laughs> internal conversation for two minutes, Willowbrook is re- referring to the Willowbrook State School, which in the late 60s was an investigative report done by Geraldo Rivera, who identified what we're going to call concentration camp conditions in a state school that supposedly supported developmentally disabled individuals. As a result of that investigative report and a lot of advocacy from advocates and parents and families, there was something called the Willowbrook Consent Decree that dictates how people with developmental disabilities will be treated in New York. As a matter of fact, it created, part of it was the creation of the Office of the Persons with Developmental Disabilities. I encourage anybody who's interested about that 
to go to the online Willowbrook Museum out of SUNY Stony Brook. But I am going to tell you, I will give you the trigger warning that the stuff you're going to find there is disturbing. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, I believe people were living in their own feces. They weren't mm -hmm. clothed. It was, they were just, yeah, yeah. The, the, the comment, because it's a very common clip from Geraldo's footage. Uh, you can see they have clothes on today, but normally, and I'm like, wait, so that means knowing media was coming in, you clothed them. But if you didn't know media was coming in, you weren't going to clothe them. And they, they turn around and they go into a room and there's naked people on the floor and they're banging their heads against the wall. I mean, disturbing stuff. Yeah, yeah. So when they're talking about fear of going back to Willowbrook, it's a legitimate fear. COVID created that. I don't necessarily think that's the governor's fault, right? Regardless of who the governor is. But there is some stuff that we can say about what we learned from COVID. Mm -hmm. I will say to you that I think we're different now. I think it's going to be an argument about priorities and how we manage to do the things we do. Because we know the DD community now lives in community residences. We, we broke the schools up and we, and, and we put people into housing at like six or eight at a time. Mm -hmm. Right. And over the years, residences in those houses have gotten more and more and more control over what happens to them when they're living in their own residences, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to walk all of that back, yeah. but I do think that we have to be vigilant about that. I, I, that's the conversation about that. We have to be vigilant to make sure that we're really not going back to the 70s. Definitely. And I mean, you, you brought up the Olmstead decision, which I just want to mm -hmm. clarify what that is for people who might not know. In 1999, there was a Supreme Court case that affirmed that disabled people have the right to live in the setting most integrated to their community. So for some people, that's living on your own in an apartment. Mm -hmm. But some people do need a higher level of care. So they live in a setting like a group home. Correct. And Lois Curtis and Elaine Wilson, by the way, they've, they've both passed on now, but we owe them a great debt of gratitude. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know the disability community continues to fight to make sure that that decision is upheld and honored. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that is advocating for funding like fair pay for home care. And I do want to uh, offer you the chance to talk about what fair pay for home care as a bill originally was, because I know that what is has come out in the past two years in the budget is very different from what activists originally were asking for. Well, what they what they wanted was they wanted to get the wage, uh, and remember how diverse a state we are, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. They wanted to get the statewide wage for, for aid, service, and supports to $21.50 an hour, right? Mm -hmm. And remember, at the time in upstate, we were talking about wages in the 12 and a half to $13 an hour, right? Yeah. So if you look at the gulf of that amount of money, I'm looking at that saying, well, that's not something we're going to do in two years. This is going to be a thing where we're going to take a step and then we're going to take another step and we might have to justify that step and fight for it. And then we take another step. So when the deal on fair pay for home care came out in last year's budget where they said it's going to be $2 in the first year and a dollar in, in the second year, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, here's a good initial investment. Now we've got to fight to keep it. Now we have to figure out whether that investment helps us in being able to hire or retain people in this critical industry. We never even got an opportunity to look at that impact because yeah. the next budget cycle, they're going to tell you that they didn't walk it back. They just delayed it. Mm -hmm. And again, 
with regulations, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but it doesn't changing the deal without consulting the people with disabilities that are affected by that deal. Right. Yeah. And it's definitely a thing. One of the things that kind of made this budget process a mess. Yeah. I, I know um, some legislators, uh, had concerns with the fact that usually these budget bills are supposed to like sit and marinate for three days so people can look at them. And that didn't happen this time no. around. I mean, no. as someone who works in policy, how did that impact you and your organization? Well, you, you got to remember that with an on-time budget, there's a certain rate at which things happen, right? We know uh, the governor does her first announcement and her proposed budget announcement in the first week of January. So we know there's a four-month window where we're advocating for what we want, right? Mm -hmm. And the last couple of budget cycles have taught us that there, there does need to be an argument about thinking about that before the governor makes her announcement. When they're, do, when they're doing the, like the pre-departmental asks, whether or not we should be saying things to departments at that time. But it is a process. So when the governor delays the budget, and we don't know why, mm. right? Because by that point, most legislators don't know why. I work with a lot of our Western New York delegation, got a lot of friends and a lot of supporters of people with disabilities who want to do more for us, but they can't do as much as they want because once they've put out their house budgets, for those people needing government civics in the room, first the governor puts out her budget, then they have hearings about that. And then the Assembly and Senate then put out their budgets. I didn't know this until a few years ago, but those budgets have colors. Mm. Right? The governor's budget is the white budget, and I think the Assembly's budget is yellow. Hmm. You know, They have colors. And what happens is the three or four men in a room, or four people in a room, because I think there's more women in the room now than yeah. men, uh, the, the people in the room then reconcile those budgets and those policy recommendations to come out with one thing. But once they put the one house budgets out, right, there's very little we can do. Mm -hmm. We can advocate with our local legislators and say, look, talk to your leaders and make sure that we know that this is important. From an independent living standpoint, I'll do the best I can. But there are so many things that sometimes get asked for by so many groups of individuals, right? I can't call people every day with a different thing. Mm -hmm. no, no advocate can, right? Because they're going to start to go, well, how do you know about all this stuff? Who's telling you about all this stuff? Are you being used by some, uh, by some lobbying organization? So I work with my advocates to, to tell their legislators about what's important to them. And hopefully, if all of those voices get out, then everything we need to get covered gets covered. Yeah. That one of the reasons why the staffing crisis is so important is because we were locally, we were divided. The DSP issue and the fair pay issue were separate, mm -hmm. right? And then we got together and started talking about it as one unit where we say, look, we're not, we're saying DSPs need raises. We're saying fair pay for home care needs to be supported, but I don't want to call those two separate things. I want you to look at that as the disability staffing crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can bring people together rather than pull them apart. And, and just for our listeners to understand, DSPs are funded in a very similar way. Money. Direct service professionals, by the way. I yeah, keep forgetting. Direct support professionals yeah. or DSPs. 
um, who again, you know, they do a, a different level of care than a home health worker. Mm-hmm. They're more of, you know, executive functioning tasks. Right. They're like a community support person. Managing right? your house, managing your life. Right. And those individuals are also paid through the state Medicaid dollars, but they go through agencies. Think of like People Inc. Mm-hmm. That money comes down through them. And so their wages are also determined by the budget, but a different part of the budget. Right. A different part of the budget. And, and on a federal level, like a different funder for the federal percentage, right? So Medicaid is really complicated stuff, right? Um, But as advocates, what we try to make sure that they realize is it's at the end, it's how it affects us, what Medicaid pays for and what it doesn't. Ask yourself what happened when they created Medicare Part D, the drug benefit, and what that meant for people. And they started talking about the donut hole, which is that window where you're not going to get supports for paying for the drugs you need and how we handled the donut hole. Disability policy is a lot like that. Yeah. So I know with fair pay for home care, the original ask in the bill was uh, permanent set to 150% of the minimum wage. Correct. Then we... I'm sorry, I used the actual number, but that is yeah. what they were looking for, 150% <laughs> they... of the area minimum wage. So that way, no matter what, home care workers would always be above the minimum wage and the DSPs were asking for uh, a cost of living increase mm-hmm. of 8.5%. Mm-hmm. Then that got whittled down to 2.5% in the executive budget and then the final budget at 4%. Um, and, and, and all of this is math and wages, but I, it all comes down to like, what does a person need to live on and what would make this competitive mm-hmm. enough that people could stay in this field and support their families? And so, um, especially as a person who receives these services, what do you want to see these workers paid and how do you think is a realistic way of getting to that wage? Well, I think we have to, rem- I think we have to remember that work has value. And people are going to stay where they think they're valued. And pay is the primary function of that value. Especially now with millennials and Gen Zs entering the workforce, it's a big thing about pay being a a, a measurement of that value, not the entire benefit package, right? So, you know, what do I want? I want a long-term goal of 150%. I also want that for the DSP workers. I also want that for the childcare workers, you know, I want to be able to make sure that we're recognizing people for the work they're performing. Uh, Oh, my God, I, I, you know, I would want that for the paratransit drivers, right? I don't have to worry as much about them because they're unionized. But still, we want that. Now, how we get there, that's that's the most complicated question you could ever ask me. As an advocate and as a citizen, what I want to be able to say is I genuinely want to be involved in that conversation. Because how can I attempt to come up with an answer to give people if I don't know the things I should know and I'm not in the room when they're making these decisions? And I know that, you know, think about this like investing in the disability community. You're going to get a lot more investment if you genuinely ask us about program development before you've locked down the final details of program development. Uh, By way of example, they've changed the way Medicaid works a couple of times. The governor ran a couple of Medicaid redesign team panels. The problem is DOH, in their infinite wisdom, internally made 90% of those decisions. 
Then there was an advisory panel to review their recommendations. We got one guy or two guys that got to speak for a combined total of four and a half minutes. And they ignored everything we told them. So it kind of goes back to this bigger issue, too, of like, are disabled people included in these conversations? Yes. And what I've learned from this budget cycle is I is we have to be included in conversations with broader uh, entities of people, not just the guys working for DOH or the guys working for OPWDD or the guys working for OMH, but the people at SEIU 1199, the people in the state employees union, right? We need to know and have a dialogue with them about what they're advocating for. It's important for us, right, to know and understand so that we can educate the broader citizens. I'm lucky. I work at an independent living center and I've been doing this a long time. I know stuff that regular consumers might not know. And my job as an advocate is to educate them and to advocate for them to be the voice in the room when they can't be. But if there's no room to have a voice in, how does it matter how loud our voice is? So I look at that solution less in terms of dollar amounts and more in terms of genuine conversations about the value of work. Yeah. Because if we don't do that, we're going we're gonna to continue to have arguments over who's most important. Because this whole thing started, the rush for wages started when fast food workers wanted to get $15 an hour. And the governor established a wage board. And we said, the, the, the disability community said, hold on a minute, what about us? Mm-hmm. And they, they did, I remember down at City, City Hall in Buffalo, they did a big uh, union thing about fast food workers, $15 an hour. I have a small counter protest in the corner. Me, a couple of other disabled guys, and some staff support holding up signs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about us? People are hamburgers too, right? Now, we got supported by the union workers that were there. They wanted us to come into City Hall and put our signs up outside the doors Mm -hmm. of City Hall. At the time, an inaccessible venue to hold a hearing for anything. Yeah. Right? Um, And we've been making this argument since they first made the run for wages, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we have to have a genuine conversation about these policies and about the value of work. Did I, did yeah, I answer for you? Yeah, you absolutely did. So many people I've talked to have also said that, like, they're not against fast food workers nope. making $15 an hour. Nope. But the big thing is that you can't make it. Uh, this is a, something someone told me in an interview recently. I can't make a better hamburger to afford to pay my workers. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's and again. We're, we're fighting ourselves. We're fighting within our local community to argue that our work is more important than someone else's work. And I think that that could be a losing proposition. I don't think that we should be talking about more important. I think we should be talking about as important. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about employment, but we would be remiss not to also talk about the services that 
allow people to live independently in their community, especially people with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And um, for people with mental health conditions, getting either inpatient or outpatient care, that's also funded by the state budget. Absolutely. And I know one thing that renewed last year in the state budget that was uh, controversial to some people in the disability community was Kendra's Law. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about what Kendra's Law is and what's been the impact of that renewal last year. I would be remiss if I didn't say that West New York Independent Living has a mental health program as part of its family of agencies, uh, Mental Health Peer Connection, because those folks are also considered people with disabilities eligible for independent living services. So we have an agency specifically that deals with that stuff. So if if what we were talking about before with fair pay for home care is complicated, the mental health budget gets even more complicated, Mm -hmm. right? Because it isn't just about the independence of those folks. Sometimes it's about health and safety. It's a very complicated thing in that budget, right? Yeah. And where we always look for that as any investment is a good starter investment. Now we have to look at making sure that the investment goes to support community care over institutional care. Yeah, and, and I know in this year's state budget, Hochul just announced that $890 million will be provided in capital to develop new residential units plus $120 million in ap- annual operating costs for residential mental health care treatment, as well as $25 million in capital and $7.3 million annually to increase operational capacity for inpatient psychiatric treatment. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go through all the numbers, but the numbers to support outpatient services is much less. I'm wondering what that says to you as someone who, who works in this policy and advocates for people. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be fair to our governor and also respectful to the, the community of people with disabilities that are affected by this issue and be able to say it's a complex answer. If you follow the fact that the attorney general was in and did public testimony about the state of our local mental health system, I can't say that financial help to support the inpatient side of the system isn't a good idea. But I I always want outpatient services and community services to be given as much time. I want to end this on a very important question of, for people who are listening to this and who care about this cause, how can people get involved to make sure that independent living is fully realized or what needs to happen so that way independent living can be fully realized and people can live safely and comfortably in their communities. Uh, The greatest thing about this is that my work is not an industry secret. If you want to know more about what I do and how I do it, I am happy to tell you. I will meet with individuals. I will meet with groups. I will try and give you whatever tools that allow you to be an effective advocate for whatever disability issue lights you up. So if they need information about that, all they need to do is call us. Independent Living, 716-836-0822. If you need individual services, you're going to call extension 126. If you want to talk about the stuff that I do, you give me a call at extension 101. You can always look at our website, www.wnyil.org, or our social media presences. Just look for West New York Independent Living and you will find us. Great. Thank you so much, Todd. We really appreciate it. A pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Emily Watkins, and you are listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.